This is the intertestamental history. The intertestamental history is the time period between the First Testament and the Second Testament. The First Testament ended around the 400s, 430 B.C. That was the last prophet was Malachi. And we talked about how the prophets went silent and stopped talking and God stopped giving revelation to his people, books of the Bible, scripture. And then we enter into this silent years where all this history starts unfolding because that's what humans do. And over 400 years go by until the next prophet, John the Baptist, shows up on the scene, which begins the Second Testament era. And we go through this period because we want to better understand the world of the Gospels. We go from the Persian Empire, letting them return, and have this like podunk little group of people living in Judah. And they've just come back out of exile. And they have no king. They have a temple, but no Shekinah glory of God in it. And then you get into the Gospels, and you end up with the Roman Empire and this temple state, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes and all this cultural changes. And then Christ is speaking to this community. And a lot of what he says, we think we understand and make up our own American reasons, or we don't fully understand because he's addressing them. That's what we're going to go through is this history from those two periods. The point is not to become like this knowledgeable expert person in every single detail. I'm going to give you a lot of names, and we're going to go through a lot of dates and histories, and we're going to cover 400 years of history and multiple empires and lots of political figures. I'm not trying to become an expert. Obviously, if you love history, you're going to probably be eating this up right now, and this allows you to like maybe dive in deeper. And there's like... We live in a time period where there are so many more resources for the everyday normal person now. Like when I was first starting to study this back in seminary and stuff, it was like you had to go to like a library, like not just like the Columbus Library. They don't have much. You had to go to like university libraries and you had to check out these books and read through them. Now there's people who just eat this stuff up like candy and they've made really good YouTube videos and they'll take you through every single arrow that is shot step by step in battles if you really like that kind of stuff. And, and they're not that detailed, but I'm just kind of making points. And then the graphics are very good. So we live in a day and age where it's a lot easier to demonstrate and teach this stuff. So if you're really interested in stuff, I can send you YouTube links of great videos that kind of detail these battles and go through these historical figures. The main point for us today is just to paint a picture of the world. The main thing that I'm trying to help you understand is the chaos of governments and empires. And the other main thing is what the Jews are going through through all these years absolute chaos and oppression that they lived through decade after decade after decade. That's the main thing I want you to see. And the third main thing is the, the ideologies, the worldviews, and the people groups in Israel that grew up out of this as a response to this. So that you can better understand why they are what they are when we get into the gospel. When we end the First Testament... The empire that's in control is the Persian Empire. Now remember the first empire that really came into power. We had little kingdoms here and there like the Akkadians and the Egyptians were much bigger and, and the Canaanites and the Hittites and all these kingdoms that were going throughout human history. But the first world empire that really showed up on the scene were the Assyrians in the 700s. 
And they took Israel, the northern tribes, and a whole bunch of other nations into exile and scattered them across the world. And then around 560s, the Babylonians came in and became a new world empire that the world had never seen before. And they conquered the Assyrians, they conquered Egypt, and they, they came in and they took over. And they took Judah, the southern kingdom, and a few other nations into exile and scattered them as well. And then they were overcome by the Medians as the Babylonian Empire began to wane and lose its influence and power but still existed. The Median Empire began to rise up in power and become more dominant. Who helped Babylon establish itself and take over the world? And then out of the Median Empire came a man by the name of Cyrus II. And Cyrus II betrayed his grandfather, who ruled the Median Empire, and then established his own throne and established the Persian Empire. And so he is the king who then allowed the Jews to return back to Judah starting in 539 B.C. That is the last final books of the Bible that we covered the last time we met, which is basically Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and the final post-exilic prophets that are all under this Persian empire. In 539 B.C., Cyrus II allows the Jews to return. And under three returns, three waves, they began to return. And they returned back to Israel, but it's now called Judah. So Israel as in a nation of 12 tribes no longer exists. You only have this tiny little city-state by the name of Judah. And many people from many of the tribes are returning back to Israel, but they're not coming back in their tribal territories anymore. The tribal territories have been taken over by other nations. They're controlled by the Babylonians and other people. Most of the people returning are the tribe of Judah and the priests from the tribe of Levi. And then there's a whole bunch of other people from other tribes are getting intermixed with them. And they start rebuilding the temple when they begin to return, but that took them a while. They kind of gave up because of the pressure from outside forces. Haggai encouraged them to keep going. And in 515 BC, they rebuilt the temple. They finished it completely. However, remember the Shekinah glory of God never returned to the temple and never indwelt it. So about 81 years later, in 458 BC, there was a second return of people back to Judah under the leadership of Ezra. And then about a few years later, under, in 445 BC, there was a third return under the leadership of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah rebuilt the walls. And so at that point, Israel, or Jerusalem, he rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. At that point, Jerusalem is now a, a, a city. It's a city with a government, no kings, but they have governors. They have a temple, a place of worship, and they have city walls to protect them from the outside forces that would threaten them. And so this is kind of where we leave. The first, this is where the First Testament leaves Judah with this kind of a state of existence and government. The post-exilic prophets, they come in and they begin to minister to these people during this time period. And they said that the exile would not come to an end until Israel, the people of Judah, really truly repented their sins and came back to Yahweh in faithfulness. Because one of the things that Ezra and Nehemiah showed us in these two books is not a lot had changed in their human nature. And that they were, they were, they were not really worshiping idols on the massive whole scale like they had previously, 
But there was still just that sin nature there, that lack of trust in God, the lack of faithfulness, following their hearts, doing whatever they wanted, and intermarrying with people of different faiths and that kind of stuff. Disobeying the Sabbath, not really taking sacrifice to the tabernacle, allowing people to come into the tabernacle that, or the temple, not really making sacrifice to the temple, allowing people to come in that weren't supposed to be there. And so the post-Siglid prophets said, until you're really truly faithful, nothing is going to change. Ag- physical exile, so to speak, is over with. God has allowed you to return back to the land. You're back in the land. You have a temple. But one can see that you're not thriving and flourishing with the blessings of God in this land. And the Shekinah glory of God has not returned. And so spiritual exile technically is not over with. And the 70-year exile physically is over with, but the spiritual exile is not over with. And the prophets basically said that just like the previous prophets, their hearts need to be circumcised. Their hearts need to be changed. And at this point, you begin to realize that nothing can change a human heart. Nothing in this world can change the human heart. And so the prophets begin to speak of a day that the Spirit would be poured out on the people. And the Spirit would change their hearts and write the law in their hearts and give them the ability to actually follow God, to love God, to be forgiven by God, and that God would then remember their sins no more. And he promised that when this began to happen, he would come and he would establish his kingdom on earth under his messianic king and begin to remove all evil on the world and destroy the enemy. Malachi then becomes the last prophet to speak this, and he goes silent. And the prophets are completely silent for over 400 years. God gives no new revelation, no prophets speak, and the people are left in this. Will you repent and become faithful? to bring spiritual exile over with. At first, this probably is not going to affect the people a lot. They're used to ignoring the prophets. Very few actually respond. But as time goes on, they're going to begin to realize that something's changed. And they're going to feel that absence as they're left at the mercy of the world. When God is no longer actively, physically there as a wall of protection, when he is no longer speaking to them and guiding them, they're going to notice the absence over a time period. And it would not be until John the Baptist came along that this silence would be completely broken after all this time. During this time period, they are being more and more oppressed. Eventually, the Persians are going to be conquered by the Greeks And the Greeks are just going to squeeze and crush Judah in a way that nobody else ever had. And then they're going to be replaced by the Romans, who are also going to squeeze them. Now, the Romans are going to bring a relative peace, but it's still the peace of the threat of don't question us and you'll have peace. But if you do question us, we will destroy you and crush you. Under this pressure and the absence of God's revelation and prophets, The people's desire for this messianic savior is going to increase drastically. And then we know that the more and more you're crushed under somebody else in oppression, the more you begin to cling to whatever shred of hope you can have that one day this will come to an end. And the prophets left them with this very powerful image of a Messiah that would come as a king and conquer all the the evil in the world and all the nations and establish Israel, Judah, as the empire over all the worlds and rule with peace and righteousness and all this kind of stuff. So every time the heel or the boot got slammed on their neck, they became even more desperate for this. And they began to long for it even more. 
Now, at the same time, there's those group of people in Israel who are longing for the Messiah and the kingdom of God and crying out to him more and more as time goes by. There's also people who begin to think, well, we've got, we got to survive on our own. And God isn't going to be here anymore for us. And, and obedience isn't really doing it. And so they begin to make compromises with moral compromises, political compromises with the people that are oppressing them in order to survive, in order to bring more comfort into their life. And we kind of expect this. Any movie that you've ever watched, any book you've ever read, you've watched the news, these are typically the two kinds of people that begin to show up as human history goes through. When you have no more prophets, then where do you go to for moral guidance? Where do you go to for the instructions on the law? And so the priests become more and more dominant. And they became more and more concerned with ritual purity. Because their solution, when they weren't corrupt, well, their solution was, we need to obey the law. And they really started buckling down on the law even more than ever before. And they really started emphasizing no idolatry, obedience to the law, ritual purity. And that works-oriented like belief system began to increase drastically. And so they begin to push and emphasize the law. And this led to a new group of leaders known as the scribes. And the scribes were the people who were responsible for copying the law. Because now you, you have time going by and scriptures don't last very long. The paper that they're written on don't last very long. And so they start copying it. And as they begin to copy it, they became very knowledgeable in it. As they became very knowledgeable, they became the experts. And so they, they were the people that people went to to understand the law. And the scribes started gaining more and more political power and influence over time. And as the priests then, who also had great influence because of the absence of prophets and kings, these two new groups started to become the political power in Israel. The priests and then the people who were the, the intellectuals, the scholars and the word of God. And they started becoming the political power. Over time, Israel will become known as a temple state meaning the, the word state communicates the idea of government. And so the temple state was that the temple would be the heart of the government. And so they wouldn't have like a white house or the king's palace or the state house as the center of power. It would be the temple. And the temple started becoming religious and political power mixed together. This means that no longer was the will of God being spoken directly from the divine council to a prophet who would then go out and quote God exactly, thus saith Yahweh. Now the will of God was being communicated to the people through the interpretation of study. Through the interpretation of study. Now you would say, well, that's kind of like today, right? I mean, most of what we know from the Bible comes from people who are scholars who have dedicated their life to studying it, and then we can study the Bible too because we have the, the access to it through the printing press. And so a lot of our understanding of the will of God comes through and the interpretation of the scriptures. And yes, that's true. However, the difference is, hopefully, we're leaning mostly on the Holy Spirit who's indwelling us. And we talked about this at the end of the post-exilic prophets, that now through Christ, we can have the divine counsel actually in us. So yes, it's a mixture of scholarship and studying the word of God and interpretation, but it's also mixed with prayer and the voice of the Holy Spirit, hopefully guiding us towards the correct interpretation, especially if we all gather together and we all pray and we all seek and then we all hear the same voice. 
But for them, they have no Holy Spirit. So it's literally completely left to their interpretation and study in that sense. And so this is the new era that they begin to be launched into. An absence of the Shekinah glory, the word of God through the prophets, and now emphasis on the priests, emphasis on rituals, and the emphasis on studying the word of God through interpretation of the scribes. And these two entities are it. At the same time, the Persian Empire is pretty relaxed. It's allowed them to return home. They have freedom of religion. They have freedom of government. They have freedom of, of there's no slavery. The oppression is very light under the Persian government as long as they pay their taxes. And they're pretty free. But that's where the intertestamental period begins to enter in. And things will begin to change. And so this is where scripture becomes silent on history. And we now have to go to other writings and other sources to figure this out. And a good source to go to is there's two books called First and Second Maccabees. And there's these books that were written during the intertestamental period by the Jews. And the Jews wrote lots of books like the Bell and the Dragon and Tobith and the Wisdom of Solomon. And there's all these books gathered together in a collection called the Apocrypha. And the Apocrypha just basically means a revelation. And the, the Book of Enoch is in there. And this Apocrypha is not necessarily a false writings. That would be pseudepigraphas false writings or heretics who are trying to promote a different theology or a false teaching to people. And there are some of those during this time period too. But it's basically Jews recording their history. So then there is commentary on it because every history book has commentary on it, so to speak. But they're recording their history. And if you go to a Catholic Bible, the Apocrypha is right there in the middle. And the Apocrypha is very beneficial for reading. I don't know how much is really truly from God. In truth, there are some places in the Apocrypha that are quoted in the Bible. If you were here for the first Peter, or if you were here for the second Peter study and the Jude study, they quote passages from the Apocrypha. And there are places in Revelation that make multiple references or allusions to the Apocrypha. And so that seems to suggest that there is truth in the Apocrypha. When we read First and Second Maccabees, it's more like a history book of what happened during the time of Antiochus IV and the Hasmoneans, who we're going to spend a lot of time on in this section. And those, those details seem to be very accurate from what we can tell reading other historical commentaries and books on this time period. So how much of it is absolute truth and inspired of God? Some people are very adamant that the Apocrypha should be included in the canon. Some people are not. There are mistakes, there are questionable things, but put aside all that, it is beneficial for reading because what it does is it helps you understand that history and it helps you understand how the Jews think. And the better you can understand that history, the better you can understand the Jews think, the better you can understand what Jesus is saying to them and how he's interacting with them and, and his commentary on their belief systems and their history. The Apocrypha gives us a great detailed history when we get to the Hasmoneans and the first and second Maccabees. And so there are things being written during this time period by the Jews and other people. We just don't con consider them inspired word of God.